Thank you so much, Pastor Bob. First Kings chapter 18, grab your Bible and turn there as we continue in our series. And as you're doing that, I want to start with a story about me in third grade and Little League Baseball. How many of you played Little League Baseball out there? Any uh, little little guys? Well, yeah, I tried. And women, all right? Baseball, awesome. Thank you very much. It's, a, it's one of those sports where boys and girls can both play. And uh, here's the thing about my Little League Baseball career. In third grade, I struggled. See, the first year they let the kids pitch was in third grade. And one of these kids named Sean was kind of wild. And so whenever I got up to bat against Sean, he was a lefty. And he, he would throw this wicked slider with his left hand. And I would get up to bat. And um, man, so many strikeouts against Sean. I was frustrated. I was not doing well. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a difficult time for a third grader. And my coach said, I know what your problem is. And I said, okay, what's the problem? He said, Dave, you're stepping in the bucket. How many of you know what stepping in the bucket is? You remember that term? Stepping in the bucket, there's no literal bucket. Stepping in the bucket means you're up to the plate, you're up to the batter's box, and you take your left foot, if you're righty and you bat righty, and you just take a little half a step out of the batter's box just as the pitch uh, is released so that you can quickly get out of the way if the ball comes heading towards you at however many miles per hour a third grader can pitch. But for me, it felt really fast, and I didn't want to get nailed by Sean's slider, and so I would step in the bucket, and I wasn't close enough to hit, so I would, you know, strike out, stepping in the bucket. Now, the reason why we step in the bucket is because we have two priorities. On the one hand, I wanted to hit the ball. On the other hand, I did not want to hit, get hit by the ball. And those two things were uh, at odds with one another, and I was kind of waffling up there. There's a spiritual lesson that I'd like to draw out about that today. A lot of times we can step in the bucket spiritually. A lot of times we can waffle spiritually speaking. When it comes to some areas in life, it's okay to waffle, okay? When you decide where you want to go out to dinner with your family, okay, waffle around. When you decide what you want to choose on the menu, you know, do some waffling. That's fine. I like to waffle. I like Belgian waffles with syrup and butter. That's always good. It's some areas in life, no problem. Go ahead and waffle. But when it comes to the spiritual realm, it is not good to waffle in our relationship with God. Sometimes we struggle with this. We worship God on Sunday, but then during the week when we apply these principles of the scriptures to our regular lives, we end up waffling out there. Where are you currently waffling in your relationship with God? Maybe you're a teenager and you think, I just want to enjoy my life a little bit for right now and have some fun, and then later on I will decide to follow the Lord. You're stepping in the bucket. Uh, maybe for an adult, uh, how, you know, how's your commitment to God look in your workplace? Are you able to stand firm as a believer uh, during the week, or do you step in the bucket? Do you waffle there? How about with your finances? How about with your physical health? How about with your commitment to your family? Where in life do you, uh, are you tempted to step in the bucket? Where are you tempted to uh, waffle, spiritually speaking? Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the, the greatest commandment in the scriptures does not say you must love the Lord your God with part of your heart, with most of your soul, and with some of your strength. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah did not tell us, you will find me when you seek me with 85% of what you have. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 does not read, trust in the Lord as much as you can. Try not to lean on your own understanding unless you feel strongly that you're right, having done at least 10 minutes of Google research. When it comes to waffling uh, in our relationship with God, he calls us to commit 
to him with all of our hearts to step in the batter's box and to wait for him to throw those strikes at us. That's what our passage is actually about today. It's a famous story about waffling from 1 Kings chapter 18. This is a spiritual showdown. Uh, this is bigger than Mike Tyson versus, uh, you know, Lennox Lewis. This is, this is bigger than Muhammad Ali versus uh, George Foreman, the rumble in the jungle. This is even bigger than, you know, last Tuesday's debate, Trump versus Biden. This is the showdown of all showdowns. It is the, the prophet Elijah versus the, the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings chapter 18. Please turn there with me. And as you turn, let me just provide a little bit of context. We are skipping a few chapters here and a few evil kings. You'll have to go back and get the details on your own. But the, 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 the time in this story, it is now 870 BC. It has now been 60 years since Solomon ruled a united Israel. Uh, remember, the kingdom is now divided and split in two. The north and the south. Israel's in the north and Judah is in the south. A man named Ahab is now the king of the north. Ahab has forsaken Yahweh, the true God, to worship Baal. Ahab is married to an infamous evil woman named Jezebel. During this time, the two of them, like the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament, have uh, put forth a very organized and intentional effort to spread their idolatry all throughout the land. Pastor Bob will go into the life of Ahab next week, actually. But during this time, God raises up a prophet named Elijah. Uh, the name Elijah actually means, my God is Yahweh. God has commissioned Elijah for such a time as this to reintroduce him back to his people. And so through Elijah, through, God, through Elijah's prayers, God has sent a drought, not a drop of rain, not even a drop of dew. And this has caused a famine in the land for the last three years. This is exactly what God said would happen if the people fell into idolatry in Deuteronomy 11. Uh, but to King Ahab, he blames Elijah for all of this. And so that's where we are in this story. With that background, that sets the stage up for this great showdown. Now, as some of you may be familiar with this story, having attended church uh, for the duration of your lives, let me encourage you to try to look at this story with fresh eyes with me today. And you're going to see three movements. You're going to see two great silences and a uh, loud, booming answer from the Most High God. First, you're going to see the silence of the people. Then you're going to see the silence of Baal then you're going to see the booming answer of the one true God. The silence of the people, the silence of Baal, and the booming answer from the one true God. Speaking of the one true God, why don't we ask for his help now? Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you for a moment here. Pause, reflecting on your word, understanding that it is you, Holy Spirit, who inspired this text and have preserved it for us today. And Lord, we ask that you'd open up ears and eyes, most of all hearts, so that we might discern what you are speaking to us in our day. We pray, God, that the meditations of my heart and uh, the, the words of my mouth would be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we pick up the story where the wicked king Ahab confronts the prophet Elijah, 1 Kings 18, verse 17. It says this, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's house have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. 
Let me paraphrase. Elijah says, you think I'm your biggest problem, Ahab? You think this famine is your biggest problem? You and your prophets of Baal are your biggest problem. You think you see trouble now? You are about to see your trouble multiply. I'm not your problem. God Almighty, who you have rejected with your Baal worship, is your biggest problem. Elijah continues in verse 19. Now summon the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 29, I'm sorry, verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Let me pause right there, and I want you to notice two things. First thing I want you to notice is the word Lord in your Bible should be spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Do you notice that? That's not a typo. That's because that's the very name of God, Yahweh, I am who I am, that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh being God. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The second thing I want you to notice is in verse 21. It is the word waver. Your Bible might use the word limping. It's a really odd word. The Hebrew word is peka. It means to dance, skip, hop, or hobble. It's really actually very difficult to translate here. The NASB says, how much longer will you hesitate? The ESV says, how much longer will you go limping? The New King James says, how much longer will you falter? The Common English Bible says, how much longer will you try to have it both ways? I think that's a bad, good translation there. Just imagine the image of going back and forth, back and forth, and being indecisive. And if you're like me, sometimes when you have to make a hard decision, you start pacing around in your house, and you start going back and forth. You're, you're waffling, you're wavering, you're trying to figure that out, and you're uh, being very peripatetic about it. You're just kind of walking around being uh, indecisive. And Elijah's saying, stop doing that. Stop being so indecisive here. You can't live your life halfway between the one true God and your idols. This is a tragic waste of time for the people of Israel. They have fallen into this wavering trap or waffling or hobbling. During this time, many of the people in the nation of Israel were waffling between Yahweh and, and the other gods. They're, they're doing this like I was doing this in Little League. They are stepping in the bucket. They are hedging their bets. They are, they are living in fear because they're afraid that the one true God really isn't going to come true, come, come through for them. And so they are, they are stepping in the bucket. They're tottering from side to side. One foot on the path of obedience to God, the other one down in the ditch. One foot in the batter's box, the other one in the bucket. So Elijah puts down this challenge, right? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But verse 21 says something extremely tragic. Did you notice it? It says, but the people said nothing. Have you ever been in polite company and somebody asks something or says something and there's this really awkward pause after that? This is the most awkward pause ever. It's a screaming silence. It's a silence that speaks volumes about where they are in their relationship with God. Now, some of you here today, or maybe you're watching online, maybe you, you are waffling and wavering in your opinion about God himself. Maybe you're exploring Christianity, and you're welcome to do that. Take as long as you can. But let me just also encourage you not to waffle forever. In our culture, people sometimes thinks it's, think it's okay to presume a position of neutrality. 
It's called religious pluralism. It's the position that supposedly says all the religions are basically the same. They're all equally valid. If it works for you, great. That's actually not a valid or legitimate position. Here's why that's a problem. See, if you're for God or against him, those are legitimate positions. But if you say all religions are the same, all religions are basically about you know, loving God and loving other people, that's not actually allowing those people who follow those religions to believe what they say they believe. In the name of tolerance, it's actually very intolerant. For example, just take for example the, the difference between the three great Abrahamic faiths. In Judaism, they say Jesus was a false prophet and definitely not God in the flesh. Islam says that Jesus was a true prophet, but still not God in the flesh. Christianity says Jesus was greater than a prophet and most certainly God himself in the flesh. Now, how could all of those things all be true and the same at the same time? If you insist that all of these three faiths are the same, you're not allowing those who follow those three religions the dignity of believing what they say they believe. You're actually being intolerant of them, not tolerant of them. And furthermore, try to get this, you're being intolerant of anyone who won't subscribe to the belief system of religious pluralism, which is really ironic. The irony of the quote-unquote neutral position is that to even be able to say that none of you can really see the bigger picture is to presume that you actually can see some sort of bigger picture. In other words, you're assuming you know what you're saying nobody else knows. So it turns out that religious pluralism is just as entrenched and just as intolerant as the rest. The only difference is you're in denial about your intolerance. It's an illusion and it's a myth. This is what Elijah is saying. Why do you waver between these two opinions? Quit trying to ride the fence. Quit, quit trying to pretend there's some sort of neutrality. There's not. Quit stepping in the bucket. And so God comes to challenge them, and he challenges us too, and every man, woman, and child, with this question, right? How long will we waver between these two opinions? The story continues with verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, we know from reading 1 Kings, there actually is other prophets of God, but they are hiding in a cave, according to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. They are being hunted down by Ahab and Jezebel, and so they are hiding in safety. They are hiding for fear of death. But Why? If you're a prophet of God commissioned by God to stand in the batter's box and go to bat for the Lord, what in the world are you doing hiding in a cave? My opinion is they should have been standing with Elijah, but they were afraid, so they stepped in the bucket. Their voices were silenced too. Elijah comes up with an idea, verse 23. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not to set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Now, in the ancient world, they were very polytheistic, lots of gods. The god Baal was the god of the rain, the god of the thunder, the god of the lightning, the god of the storm. Uh, ancient statues of Baal typically will have him holding a lightning bolt like Zeus. 
And so this test, I want you to see something. This test is set up to specifically favor Baal, right? This is like his specialty. If you're the rainmaker God, if you're the God of the storm, then this should be like right up your alley. If you're the God of the, you know, the storm, surely you can manage one lightning bolt. The odds are stacked against Elijah and in favor of Baal. Elijah is showing good sportsmanship here. Right? If, if I go play one-on-one basketball with LeBron James, he's going to say, you know, Dave, let me spot you a few points first, right? That, that's, what, that's what Elijah is doing here. He is being a good sportsman. The test is going to favor Baal. He's the rain god. Furthermore, it's 450 to 1. That's not very good odds. But that's how our God likes it. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. See, in the ancient world, unlike the, the God revealed to us in the scriptures, such as in Psalm 139, he is ever-present and always there for us. In the ancient world, they believed that the gods had to be summoned, that they had to be called, that they had to be coaxed out of their, their location wherever they were. And so this is what they're doing. But all was quiet on the Western Front. So at this point, the prophet Elijah begins to mock them in what is, I think, in my opinion, my humble opinion, the funniest verse in the whole Bible, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Baal is like a teenager. He sleeps till noon. Now, for those of us who are from New Jersey and enjoy a little sarcasm, we like eat this verse up a little bit, right? Now, mocking may be of little value in the ministry of the one true God, but it does have some value from time to time. The scriptures do employ this mechanism. Be careful with it. You can really go too far, but Elijah is skillful. Where is your God? Maybe Mr. Baal is in a meeting. You know, maybe, maybe he's on a road trip. Maybe he's taking a siesta. Maybe he's sleeping and you got to wake him up. If this was 2020 and Baal was on Zoom, maybe he's on mute. You got to, you know, click the little mute button. Tell, tell, tell Baal to click the mute button. This is good stuff, isn't it? This is what you call pyrotechnical difficulties. Or maybe more literally, Elijah actually says maybe he's using the men's room. That's what the word busy there is, but the translation is being kind to us. In all seriousness, what's Elijah doing here? It's actually a very well-known sound apologetic methodology. It's called first refutation, then demonstration. First disproof, and then proof. It's like a one-two punch here. He's showing them the emptiness of their religion. Psalm 135, verse 15 the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. The story continues. Verse 28. So they shouted louder 
and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they, were, they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice in the Hebrew world. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Did you catch that? No response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Only crushing, bloody silence. And the 450 have had their turn. Nothing but self-destruction. We see here the second movement of our passage, don't we? This is the second silence, the silence of Baal. And here's the thing about false gods. They will always, always, always disappoint us. They will never come through. When we need them, they are silent. You know what a false god is, right? It's anything that I give my heart to that becomes more important than the one true God. Anything can be a bail. Whether it's beauty or money or fame or substances like alcohol and drugs, these things take a spiritual authority over your life and they begin to control you. Even good things can become bales. Your, your family life, sometimes your work, or sometimes even your own ministry can become a bail if it is more important than your relationship to the one true God. They say, how do I know if I have a bail? Well, number one, bales always require you to dance for them. They always require you to perform. There is always a sacrifice involved when you have a bail. You perform to the point of exhaustion. And when the bail is taken away, you begin to lose your will to live. When the dancing no longer works and your performance no longer works, you know you have a bail when you start to slash yourself. This is what bails demand of you. Take the bail of money, for example. Nothing wrong with money, but if it's a bail, it becomes a problem. You know, after the market crash of 2008, there were a number of high-profile suicides. The CFO of Freddie Mac hung himself in his basement. The CEO of Sheldon Good shot himself in the head. A French money manager who invested for many of Europe's royal families slit his wrists. What happened? They had lost so much money, they had lost their will to live. Why? The reason is because their money was not just their money, it was a bail. Take it away, I'm not just disappointed, I'm devastated. The problem is it had become a bail. Bales are silent when we need them. Bales always disappoint us. Nothing should have that place in my heart except the one true God. Back to our story. The prophets of Baal have failed. There is silence from the heavens. And now it is Elijah's turn. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to the, whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. That's a lot of seed. Verse 33, he arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces and laid it out onto the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars of water and pour it all on top of the offering and on top of the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time until the water ran down around the altar and even filled up the trench. 
I don't know about you, but when I make a fire in my fire pit in my patio in the backyard, I use water to put out the fire, right? I don't use water before I start the fire. And furthermore, did you remember that we are in the middle of a drought here? There is a shortage, Elijah. Why does he do this? The answer is that Elijah is a man of great faith. Not only is he giving Baal every advantage, saying, I'll spot you a few points, you can have this, I'll play with a handicap. The reason why Elijah does this is he is confident. He has faith in the one true God. He knows his God will answer. This is, I think, why I love this story. Elijah puts himself on the line. He steps into the batter's box and waits for the pitch, no matter how fast this fireball is going to come. Elijah is a man of guts. Now, he's not a perfect man. We will learn in 1 Kings chapter 19 that he makes many mistakes too. But right here, right here, he has strong faith in the one true God that is commendable. He puts himself on the line. This is why this is my favorite story of the Bible. It's so inspiring. And so the time comes after, remember, six hours of Baal worship from, noon to, from, from morning to noon. Remember that? Elijah steps up, and he's about to make history with a 15-second prayer. Verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah steps forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Everyone's eyes are on Elijah and his soaking wet sacrifice. The land has turned away from the one true God. There's been no rain or thunder or lightning for three years, no storms whatsoever, until Elijah prays to Yahweh. Movement three, the loud, booming voice of the one true God. This is one of those moments in history where I hope that when we get to heaven, there's some kind of video recording, videotape that we can watch this. Don't you want to see? Oh, to be a fly on the Mount Carmel wall. For this one. Verse 38. Immediately, quickly, decisively, as soon as Elijah says amen, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Wow. The fire was so hot it would have singed the hair off your eyebrows. God's victory here is so clear, it's unmistakable, it's unassailable. His victory is stark, it's indisputable. Why? Because the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Elijah, is alive. Look at the people's response in verse 39. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. It was a mismatch. Baal was a lightweight. And the people know this. They fall down on their faces in surrender before the awesome majesty of the one true God. And it seems that finally, after all of this silence, they have found their voices, they have found their tongues. And with their silent tongues, they begin now to finally speak, saying what? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. To God is not a nice idea. 
He's not a crutch for people who can't get by without him. He's not a tradition. He's not opium for the masses. He's not a projection of our imaginations either. He's not a symbol. No, he is the living, active, fire-sending, sin-hating, idolatry-destroying, prayer-hearing, personal God. They will never forget the day God showed up. Have you had a moment in your life where the God of Elijah showed up for you? Blaise Pascal did, and he sewed the story into his coat. Blaise Pascal was a brilliant mathematician. He invented the first calculator, and all the teenagers said, amen. He sewed into his coat his conversion story. That way he could always remember what God had done for him. And let me just read it to you. It's a little long, but just pay attention. This is what occurred in his life on Monday, November 23rd, 1654 at half past 10 at night until half past midnight. He writes this, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. My God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel, grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have departed from him. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I left him, I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet, complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director, eternally in joy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Tucks it in his coat for the rest of his life. Nobody knew it was there until after he died. Have you had a genuine experience like that with the living God? For Pascal, he never wanted to forget that moment. For Elijah, he certainly would never forget this moment. How about you? I remember for me, it was a season of waffling. It was a season of me stepping in the bucket. It was my early 20s. I was working in the F&B industry, working my way up through the Hilton Hotel, Hotel Corporation over here at Doubletree, Somerset. Work was no longer fulfilling. I had completely lost my joy. I had lost my sense of purpose. In many ways, it felt like I, I was at a dead end. And as I was driving to work one day in my 1995 Dodge Intrepid, I prayed, Lord, would you please light the fire? That's it. Went off to work. Just a couple months later, my wife's parents' pastor said, Dave, I know you talk about finishing your college degree. Have you ever thought going, about going to Philadelphia College of Bible? I said, never heard of it. He said, well, it's where I went. Why don't we take a drive? Long story short, I applied. I was accepted. I enrolled in this Bible college to take classes at night. Whatever your major is, you minor in Bible over there anyway. I took my very first class in the Bible ever, and I fell in love with the Word of God. 
God lit the fire. It's been burning ever since. How about you? Have you had a genuine experience with the living God? What is the point of this story? Look at verse 37. The point is in verse 37 when Elijah says, I want these people to know something. To know what? To know that you, O Lord, are God. Elijah knows him. He wants others to know him as well. Why? So that he might turn their hearts back to him again. That's the point of this story. God takes waffling people, people like me who are stepping in the bucket. He takes waffling people and turns them back into him. He wants to replace our hesitation with a full commitment to himself. Where are you waffling right now in your commitment to the Lord? Where in your life are you stepping in the bucket? Maybe it's in your work week or in your business or in your family life. Maybe for some of you, it's a decision that you need to give to the Lord more financially. Maybe for some of you, it's a decision to give up a certain sin, honestly. Maybe for others, it's a time where you need to confess and you need to finally tell the truth about something. Whatever it is, God wants us to stop waffling and turn our hearts back to him. What is keeping us from fully making that commitment? For some of us, it's fear. We step in the bucket, we step out of the batter's box because we're afraid. We, we are afraid that if we actually stand there, that God's actually not going to provide, God's actually not going to show up. And so we decide to step in the bucket out of fear. We waffle. But we must remember that God alone satisfies. For others of us, maybe we are concerned about rejection. People in your life think you've already taken this thing about church like way too far already. What are they going to think if you make this decision for the Lord Jesus? Remember, Christ, who demands our allegiance, also promises to provide a hundredfold worth of family and friends for you in the body of Christ. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or maybe you're here today or you're watching today and you are not yet a Christian. You are exploring the Christian faith for the first time. And you think, I'm too far gone. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my sin. You don't know that God can never forgive me for what I've done in my past. If that's you, I want you to remember earlier on in our story, we said that every bale requires us to sacrifice or perform for it. This is the difference between Christianity and all the other bales. The God of Jesus Christ sent his son to this earth to live the life we should have lived, die the death that we should have died in our place so that we could have a relationship restored with him. It's all by grace. We find here there's only one God and there's only one Lord who doesn't say, slash yourself for me. Rather, in Christianity, we find a God who slashed himself for you. That's the difference. Friends, we come to him by faith and faith alone. Wherever you are in your faith journey, I encourage you today to put aside your waffling and say together with us, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Can we pray together? Oh God, you, O oh Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. And this morning we exalt thee together. We say with the words of the hymn writer, since Jesus gave his life for me, should I not give him mine? 
I'm consecrated, Lord, to thee. I shall be wholly thine. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, here today, I pray that you'd give us the courage to step into the batter's box, the courage to stop our waffling and make our lives fully committed to you. For you, God, are God, and we worship you alone. As we come to your table, give us a time of powerful reflection and meditation on the work of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.